Welcome to Out of the Blank. To another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast with Hal. Hal, for everyone out there listening, please introduce. You like how I do that with the the inter- oh, just, yeah, so good. <laughs> um, <laughs> please introduce yourself, Hal. Hey, I'm very happy to be here. Uh, well, I'm inside and it's a beautiful day outside, but that's okay. I'm Hal Drake Smith. I'm a uh, professor of iron biology at the University of Oxford in the UK. And I've got a lab here and we do all sorts of experiments and try and find out stuff about iron biology, iron deficiency, anemia and infection and the immune response. What do you find to be the most important about iron biology, at least from your perspective? And then I guess probably from maybe a global standpoint would be the most important. Yeah, sure. So I think probably when everybody thinks about iron deficiency, they might also think about anemia. And that's because iron is really important in making red blood cells. And in red blood cells, what the iron does is it it binds oxygen and it it transports the oxygen around your body where it's needed. And so, you know, this is why we really need red blood cells. Uh, And that's, you know, classic and and very well described. And if people don't get enough iron, then it's sure they do become anemic. But what we've been finding uh, is that other processes in us also really need iron too. And we're trying to dig down as to what else in the body and what other systems that we have really need iron and so which suffer when people can have iron deficiency and probably the thing that's come out most recently and most strikingly is your immune response. So your the way that you make antibodies and the way that your um, white blood cells, things like T cells and B cells and other cells with a cool name like natural killer cells, um, they all really need iron to work too. And they need iron a lot more than we thought that they did. So that if people don't have enough iron that can get to their white blood cells, the immune system can suffer. And we've been working a heck of a lot on that. What do you find, I guess, your the focus would be, would be the general's public, like what's their consumption when it comes to iron? Is it enough? Is it their daily diet? I know there's probably people that aren't, they're skipping meals. I know that's like a big thing with diet trends, but it also, there's got to be some ramifications with it as well too. If you skip meals, you're not getting the essential nutrients. Where I start looking at like, is the overall population healthy and what can we be doing to, you know, help out? And that usually leads down the rabbit hole of like supplementation. And I, As much as I like that, I just don't necessarily trust it a whole lot too. I'm like, we should be getting it from our foods, but also, I mean, how many people are able to really check and make sure they're getting all their daily values of everything. So then it relies on, you know, actual little supplement pills that maybe we could help out with people. But then there's a balance like we were talking about, which is the aspect of getting too much. How do you get something where you won't, it'll help out your immune system, like an immune booster, I would say, but enough to where you're getting your daily value. So you're not deficient of iron, but also not getting so much to where you can get sick from it. Yeah. Well, there's a lot to unpack with that. Um, So I think let's start with the idea of which types of populations get iron deficiency and why they get them. Let's start with that. And then let's think about um, how the best way is to counter that safely. And these are two really big questions. They're they're very complex questions, but I'll try and dig down to them in a a relatively simple way. 
So um, about a quarter of the world is believed to be anemic. Uh, and about half of those people who are anemic, the major cause is not getting enough iron. And so they're, they're iron deficient to the extent that it's affecting how many red blood cells um, that person can make. But there's a whole load of other people who are iron deficient, who are not iron deficient enough to become anemic, but their iron deficiency still exists and is still having some effect on their health. It might be causing fatigue, might be causing um, growth de development issues, um, potentially cognitive issues as well. Um, in particular, I'm talking about really now is in infants. So the, the demographics of which populations are most affected by iron deficiency is quite interesting. So it's certainly um, newborns and infants um, because they're growing really fast and they need lots of iron to help their growth and particularly probably for the brain, but also bone development and so on. In fact, in infants, less for red blood cells and more for other stuff, it's thought, because uh, the infant has still got a load of red blood cells from its mum. Um, then children and adolescents, again, rapid growth, need lots of energy, particularly if, uh, if a boy is putting on muscle, uh, muscles made of a protein called myoglobin, myoglobin needs iron too. Um, then premenopausal women can lose iron, obviously, so every month, and that needs to be replaced. And if it isn't replaced, then iron deficiency and anemia is very common in premenopausal women. Um, and then um, in, during pregnancy, then uh, more iron, even more iron is needed um, for the for the mum to increase her blood volume and to support the growth of the, the, the growing baby inside. And then finally, the elderly are particularly prone to iron deficiency. And that's probably for slightly different reasons, not so much nutrition, but um, just kind of general uh, in difficulty in absorbing iron and maybe the, the gastrointestinal tract, uh, the gut might not be working quite so efficiently in absorbing nutrients. So lots of different populations. And also what I would say is that that's not the same in every country in the world. So we do a lot of work in uh, with collaborators in sub-Saharan Africa. And in those situations, then it, it really is a lot of nutrition. that's um, an issue in getting the right amount of nutrients at the right time. And it's infants in particular and uh, premenopausal and pregnant women who, who really do have that burden of iron deficiency and iron deficiency anemia. It's really, you know, it's a, it's a serious burden. It's one of the, 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 the most common reasons for uh, illness in, in the world, particularly in Sub-Saharan Africa and South Asia. It's like it's a really serious issue in terms of uh, health and morbidity. It doesn't kill people, but it makes the population as a whole less healthy. Um, so it's important in that respect. Well, if I'm not mistaken, that's why there was like an invention of the Haitian mud cookies as well, too, which was eating dirt and they put like butter on it or something. But it's it's you're just eating dirt. But it's a weird thing when women who are pregnant go through an iron deficiency, they have a craving for dirt. And that yeah, sounds right. insane, but it's because there's metals and there's things that their body is like somehow instinctually telling them like this is a craving because you need these types of minerals. And usually it's with pregnant women because the baby is causing them to need more of that certain supplement. But it can also be young children too, uh, and I think uh, one of one of the names for it is I think is pica, P-I-C-A, uh, and yeah, it's quite a peculiar phenomenon. I'm not sure it's entirely always related to iron, but you're right, it is related to you know it's a it's a peculiar, probably extraordinarily ancient, not necessarily just human um, type of response to try and get more nutrients at a certain uh, time of life. Um, so, you know, what, what should we be doing? What, what, you know, what, what are the best ways of getting the amount of iron into us? Uh, and you're right that, that clearly food is the right way. 
but um, you know, different foodstuffs have very different amounts of iron. And depending on things like religious beliefs or you know, personal beliefs, you might not want to have a lot of red meat, um, which contains a lot of iron in a very absorbable form. Uh, if you have a very, if you drink a great deal, a, an enormous amount of um, tea, that's thought that potentially inhibit uh, the, the ability of the body to absorb iron, although that data is a little bit controversial. Um, there are some foods which uh, naturally contain substances which also inhibit the ability of the body to 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 take up iron. Um, so you've got to be kind of kind of quite quite careful about what food you might want to eat, which has got enough iron in it in a form that can get into the body. Wait, you said controversial though. Why is it controversial? Is it because everyone's nu nutrient needs are differently? Like my body's, I haven't eaten red meat in a very, very long time just because my body can't handle it. It doesn't process it properly, but I'll eat fish all day. It's actually where I got mercury poisoning from cans of tuna, but it's good. So I buy it. Um, <laughs> but I, I think like when we talk about like nutrient standards for things, my kind of little worry is the fact of like we as people, like I mentioned before with diet trends, as people, we are feel like we're on a time pace and we have to hurry up as much as possible so a lot of times it's skipping meals and i think even though we talked about before you talked about before with diminished capacity of having maybe some low iron levels over a long span of time you start suffering from severe side effects like it might not be something like right now you're going to like just have insane brain fog or you're going to have all these types of things wrong with you but over a period of time you're slowly starting to realize that you're getting tired more you're taking more naps because you feel like you need more naps and necessarily you just might not be getting the proper nutrients yep i think that's probably fair enough um, and but you, you're absolutely right. And again, thinking about what is the right type of food and you know, fish is pretty good and fish has got a lot of extra stuff in it. Um, so the, the, if I can give a little bit more detail, there are kind of two types of two forms of iron that, we're, that we can take in, in our diet. One is iron in heme. Uh, and so heme is a little molecule which iron binds to is, is within and it's a little ring essentially of, of, of carbon and other atoms and iron sits right in the middle of it and that is the heme that is in a protein called hemoglobin which is in red blood cells and it is why um, why blood is red it is the iron that's in it that's binding oxygen but heme is most commonly found in red meat it's why red meat is is uh, is also red it's the the heme there is in mostly is in myoglobin as the protein i mentioned before in muscle and that's really easily absorbed. Heme is really easily absorbed by, by humans. We, we, it, it's very efficient. But most iron that we have in our diet is actually not in that form frequently. It's, it's in an inorganic form, which is quite hard for the body to absorb and frequently doesn't really get in very efficiently at all. And in iron supplement tablets, for example, iron is not in that heme form usually or almost never we're trying to get more heme type of iron supplements going but it's quite difficult um, so in this inorganic form it's very poorly efficiently absorbed which means if you take an iron tablet often not much of the iron that's in the tablet gets into your bloodstream where it's needed it, it stays in your gut and there it can cause trouble and that this is an issue for taking too much iron tablets so the types of trouble it can cause are when it's in the gut and it's not being absorbed by the body, instead, other things want to eat it. And those are bacteria that are in your gut that otherwise wouldn't cause you any harm. But if they get extra iron, they might divide and grow and be really happy because they need iron to grow too. Almost every single form of life on earth um, needs iron to grow, very few exceptions. So if you have some bugs in your gut, 
that are unfriendly bacteria and are being kept in check normally by your friendly bacteria, you add iron into that mix, then you can get an outgrowth of, of the bad bacteria and then you can get inflammation and, and all sorts of side effects like that. The other issue is that it's just, you know, it's not that nice having a lot of iron in your gut and it you know, turns your poo black and it's just, you know, I've got, got a friend of mine who said, what did he say? He said it was like pulling a Christmas tree out and it's just not the best really. Um, but so, so you know, there are, there are side effects. So what, one of the things that we're really working on as a field is to figure out, as a field of research, lots of people all over the world addressing this, what is the correct amount of iron in a tablet to take per day and when, so that you absorb it most efficiently and you get fewer side effects. And you'd kind of think that this had been worked out, right? Because people, because giving iron to people with iron deficiency has been around for many, many, many decades, but it's still not worked out well. Uh, and and I, I think you know one of the major reasons for that has been that we haven't understood the underlying biology of how human beings deal with that iron. And um, at this point, I'm going to kind of plug the the, the, the key molecule that, that my lab and other labs have worked on. So you'll have heard of insulin, right? So insulin you know, regulates glucose, but it turns out we have a hormone that regulates iron, but it's much more much more relatively recently discovered. And so this molecule in this country, in the UK, we called hepcidin, and you would call it hepcidin. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, there you go. I'll try and call it hepcidin, but if I'll, I might fail. So hepcidin is to iron what insulin is to glucose. Uh, it basically is the hormone that regulates the amount of iron in your body, uh, and it does so by controlling the absorption of iron through your gut. And what we've learned is that if you have a big tablet full of iron, then a bit of iron gets into the body. And then what it does is it switches on extra levels of hepcidin to be made by the body as part of this normal response of the body to try and prevent getting too much iron in because too much iron is, is also toxic. But that means when that person who is still iron deficient try and takes more iron tablets, that iron is just not getting in. Hepcidin blocks it. That's hepcidin's job. Hepcidin's job is actually to inhibit the absorption of iron from the diet. And so you, you run into this thing called the hepcidin block and it lasts for a good day or so. And during that time, the body can't really absorb any iron from the diet, whether it's in a tablet or whether it's in food or, or whatever. So what we're learning is that it might be better, it seems to be better to have an iron tablet in the morning and then actually wait a couple of days until you have the next one. And we're still experimenting on that and figuring out if this really is the best thing to do. But it fits the way that the body actually is trying to respond to iron. And we, so we need to learn more about that, how the body deals with this naturally in order to treat iron deficiency um, more sensibly. Now, is that with tolerance? Is that why you want to give it that gap period so people can adjust to like their body? I mean, if you're taking a supplement every single day, the same exact supplement, your body's going to eventually get used to it. I mean, first of all, if you're making a supplement that's an iron supplement and you're trying to get the proper nutrients or the proper requirements, I would say like make it like two pills or like maybe dumb down the percentage, like just because people tend to be like, oh, take one. They take like six. They don't just take one. They take like six. So I, th that's what I, I would put in. But when it comes to their tolerance levels, I'm guessing that's what that break in that time period is for. Yeah, yeah. So, so you, yeah, tolerance is a good word for it. It's, that's a fine word for it. But we would, you know, we would put a, a molecular explanation onto that. And it's not so much tolerance uh, in the way that it works. Uh, the mechanism is that 
it, it's um, the, the first bit of iron goes in and then the body makes a natural response to stop more iron getting in because it knows that having too much iron is a risk. Uh, the body's you know, learned that over um, evolutionary periods of time that too much iron is a risk factor for infections and for damage of your body. So it actually is trying quite hard to keep iron out, uh, which makes, makes iron deficiency quite a tough thing to, uh, to, to treat. Have you done tests or experiments on trying to figure out like when should be like, if you're going to take a pill on a Monday, should you take it on a Wednesday or a Friday? I mean, I would just think from like blood extraction, you could tell if the iron levels have dipped down at all. So those, those are exactly the experiments that are ongoing. They're being led by some uh, collaborators, friends of ours from Switzerland, although other people are doing them too. And one of the things that our lab does is to, is to really kind of understand the, the basic biology, the mechanisms and the molecules underneath that. So if you, if you like, we're the kind of the, the, the guys who are, who are figuring out the nuts and bolts of it, and then other people take that and apply that to, um, to real humans in real settings. So it's a, it's a kind of a team effort. How do you create a iron supplement or a way to get people their proper iron without having a pathogen also get beneficial qualities from that iron? Well, that is probably the single most important question in, in the field, because um, I mean, it, it's hard to over-exaggerate the importance of iron for different pathogens. It's an absolutely critical nutrient for many infectious um, uh, organisms, particularly bacteria, uh, although also the malaria uh, parasite loves iron too. And it's, it's quite often the rate limiting step in an infection as to whether a parasite or a bacteria will really grow or not. Can it get hold of iron or not? There are some extraordinary um, stories about this. I'll tell you two, if you don't mind. Okay. So one, one is um, uh, a very famous study on an island called the Pemba Island off the coast of Tanzania, where 24,000 children were recruited into a very large clinical trial with the idea that um, giving iron and other nutrients would really help them, would help them grow, they wouldn't become anemic and they'd be healthier. And the trial had to be stopped after 11 months because of a statistically significant increase in number of children being hospitalized and even dying in the arms of the trial, in the trial where all of those children were, were receiving their nutrients. And it was infections that were being um, promoted, probably particularly malaria, but we, it's not quite clear which infections there were. And, you know, this was um, really, as you can imagine, caused a great deal of, of angst and issues in the, about 15 years ago when, when, this, when this data came out. And what it was finally really showing was that if you change the iron balance in children where there's a very high infectious burden in that population on this island off the coast of Africa, lots of malaria, lots of other bugs around, and relatively, relatively poor access to healthcare, then iron can be a real risk. It really can be a risk. And so getting iron safely to populations where there's a lot of infectious risk is probably the key issue. And it is not something that we've solved at all. Um, and it's an ongoing major problem because the alternative, you know, is, okay, let's just not do it. But then you, you're essentially leaving vast numbers of people around the world in a state where they're anemic and iron deficient, and that's suboptimal too. So it's a, it's a, it's a really tricky problem. And then, oh, yeah, 
I was about to say, like, how are you, how would you like, are you looking at methods of like how other places have dealt with their iron deficiency or getting their iron supplementation in without the use of medications? Like I mentioned the Haitian mud cookies. I mean, that's, it's an old method, but I mean, it's, that's pretty effective considering that there hasn't been a, I mean, there is issues that are going on over there, but I'm saying it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good start of like coming into a, a great aspect of it. Well, I must make an admission that I'm not overly familiar with the Haitian mud, mud cookies. And um, I'll have to look into that. That's uh, it's, it's, it's like a dirt um it's literally just dirt but it, they they shape it to look like a snickerdoodle and apparently from what i've heard of it they put a lot of butter on it or they put a lot of salt or something on it but apparently it's just packing your stomach to keep you away from starvation but the essential nutrients that you get from it i mean they they talk about it over there pregnant women eat it all the time just for help with baby and stuff but you can't eat too much of it because you can also clog up your stomach yeah sounds yeah yeah okay um well I think one of the one of the major issues at the moment in in this the global health field is to try and find a way of delivering iron safely and effectively to populations that really need it. And it is just a tough question because it, it's a nutrient that is required by so many bacteria and so many parasites, but also you know, by by growing you know humans. So. Um, there are lots of different ways in which people are trying to do it. New new types of formulations of iron, which are based more on on um, the types of iron that we have in our body anyway, uh, where iron is bound to heme or is bound to other proteins, uh, and so it might be able to be taken up in a more natural way rather than giving it in a tablet as a sort of a salt form, an iron inorganic salt. Um, there are other treatments which are uh, you know more medicalized, but potentially actually safer, which are intravenous injections of iron. Uh, and there's a formulation of iron which appears to be very safe. And of course, if you're injecting it, that you're bypassing that block in the gut. So this is, and you can give it a really a lot of iron in one shot. Uh, and this is used clinically in, you know, in the States and in the UK for people with iron deficiency or people with various disorders related to iron deficiency, where you need to get a lot of iron into them quickly. But it's possible that it could also be useful in global health settings as well, um, where particularly for uh, pregnant women, where the difficult, much, much harder for children, but for pregnant women, uh, it's definitely possible to deliver those sorts of shots uh, safely and effectively. And one, uh, somebody who's a very long-standing friend of mine based in Australia is doing exactly this trial in, in, in Africa at the moment. And it's very exciting because it, it has a chance of making a real difference, but it is, as you say, kind of quite, you know, uh, relatively medicalized. Diet's tough though too, because it, populations are used to having a particular diet and it's pretty hard to get people to change diet. And particularly if it's informed by very powerful, strong religious and cultural traditions, uh, it's hard to say, okay, now you need to eat something else. That's just not really an easy thing to do. So, um, you know, it's, it's a tricky problem, no doubt about it. It's why a, a lot of time has been spent on it. And we have not, as a field, made a lot of progress, it must be said, in the last 10, 15 years. But, we're, you know, we're, we're keeping on trying. Well, that's the fun thing is that a lot of people probably don't, like, know about this at all. And then this is new to them. And then also, if you're saying, like, we don't have a lot of information on it, I mean, that's what makes it fun and kind of new. I mean, this is an area that we got to explore as well, too. Um, I, got, I, got a, I got a question, but I'll get to it in a second. I want to talk about, um, is the reason why we can't make a synthetic or a type of iron supplement so close to the animal um, version, like the red meat version, is is it FDA 
reasons? Is, is it something? Because I have to feel like if you're a vegan and you can't eat red meat, whatever that specific thing is you're getting in red meat, there's a quality that's close to the way that our brain or our mind has been able to perceive the same, I guess, the resiliency and the iron that we can absorb as well. So that's why it's, it must closely relate to us in some sense, not like genetic wise, but just that we're used to it. We're used to having this So the brains like, oh, I know what to do with this. But I'm guessing it's probably like FDA standards. How do you create that same synthetic thing, that same chemical that it's specifically to that iron meat yeah but it but is not derived from animals yeah. exactly right so um i guess you'd be familiar with impossible foods yeah <laughs> yeah so so they you know they are one of a few different um people who made a really done a really great job of essentially making heme iron or a form of iron that's really like heme and actually does taste like heme right but is not from animals uh, and so that does have approval and the idea is that potentially this could be uh, that concept in general could be a way of getting a much more absorbable type of uh, iron into, you know, not just guys in California, but um, uh, people in sub-Saharan Africa and in Bangladesh and so on, you know, that where, where it's really, really needed, um, uh, you know, in, for hundreds of millions of children who are otherwise very iron deficient and hand to don't get access to meat often or you know may not be able to want it even if they did so um yeah i think you're exactly right it's new formulations and a, a kind of a, a vegetable type heme uh, is one way of doing it there may be ways of um using other proteins that that can contain iron that we normally have which can be synthesized in a way that does not involve animals that there are other possibilities in that general conceptual area that's right so I, I want to ask, what's the worst possible scenario that you're more concerned with of like the direction we go with iron, iron supplementation? Do you think that it would just get to a point where people would not probably try and go for like an injection shot or anything like that, but they would just rather a company be able to put that into their food for them? Like, I think that's where like, if you start talking about like iron supplementation and ways that we can get iron people, I mean, I'll go down the conspiracy rabbit hole. Do, they do it with milk. They put us, they raise up certain uh, calcium and things in milk when they uh, pasteurize it. So I go, I mean, is, I don't want it to be up to like a fast food company to start, you know, giving you your iron because all you're doing is eating burgers because you have three jobs or something like yeah. that. Well, I don't know. Do you have cereal for breakfast? Or do you Every have single day, dude, I have 13 boxes in my pantry. That's the one thing I can't stop. That's, eating. A, that's a lot. Of I eat a box every two days. Well, you're probably getting a fair bit of iron from that because iron is put extra iron is put into almost all cereals. You should check. A lot of them have extra added iron in already. And it's the same for flour as well. You can get extra iron in flour. So and that um, so bread usually has more iron in than it would normally have. Uh, and it's deliberately added. And this is all to combat iron deficiency in children in Western countries. It's been going on for decades. So that's what they mean by steel gut. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, you're getting you're getting rusty. Uh, yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, because you want to give kids and how many kids just want to eat candy? I don't think candy has a lot of iron in it. So it's a great way to supplement into their cereal. But that's, it's a little bit different. I think a lot of people probably don't know that. But with adults, like if you're saying we're going to supplement your food, there's just a there's a big kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. tear between people, especially when you get older. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah, no, got it. Understood completely. So you read what's on the box, man. How the people don't read, man. As soon as they <laughs> see a news article that says they're supplementing your food with iron, they immediately want to jump to getting rid of whatever that food is. 
idea. Well, uh, you know, iron is an incredibly important, very good thing. And it's, it's relatively hard to have too much of it through the diet because your body is really quite good at keeping it out. Uh, and you've got to, you would have to have, you'd have to have, I don't know, 13,000 boxes of cereal in your, in your um, pantry before you were at risk of iron overdose from, from your bran flakes or something. So, um, you know, that, I don't really see that as, as, as so much of an issue. Um, iron overload disorders are caused not so much by diet. It's pretty rare. They're normally caused by genetics. So when, when that, that system that I was telling you about, where we have this hormone hepcidin or hepcidin that's switched on after you have iron in your diet and then keeps further iron out, there are, there are very common mutations that basically prevent that system from working as well as it should. And, and those individuals are predisposed. They don't always get it. Um, depends also on a bit of diet and all sorts of other factors. Um, but they can, be, they can um, get iron overload disorder. And that's a, a fairly common disease called hemochromatosis, hereditary hemochromatosis. Um, means uh, you know that it, it's it's to do with iron and, and blood and color, um, and it, it's it's uh, one of the most common genetic single gene um, genetic disorders in Caucasians. Uh, it's not very common in other populations, but in other populations, so for example in Africa uh, and in in South Asia, a very common disease is something called thalassemia, which is related a little bit to sickle cell disease in which it's a mutation in genes which are in which control making red blood cells uh, and it protects against malaria like like sickle cell does but thalassemia also leads to, to really bad iron overload so there are these two genetic diseases hemochromatosis and thalassemia which which are really the causes of um, pathological iron overload rarely is it because you've eaten too many burgers fairly rarely that's and that wasn't a help right but you, you really need some genetics underneath it too it's now is there when we go back to creating a synthetic version that wouldn't be beneficial to like parasites or pathogens but you could actually have something that's more beneficial to human is there a way to maybe just tweak the quality if there is like a possible solution to where it's not going to affect pathogens but it's going to be something new that our body could get used to in a sense um, I think uh, that's going to be very hard because bacteria and, and parasites are very highly evolved to basically capture iron from us. Uh, so, you know, the, the form of iron that we get given in the diet, it will get into us and then it will be incorporated into our normal uh, iron proteins, that, you know, the enzymes that, you, that need iron to make DNA. Um, to make energy, to carry oxygen, all that stuff. The iron's going to end up in the same place, right? No matter how you give it in the first place. And back, there'll just be more of it. And uh, bacteria are very, very, very good at scavenging iron from us. You know, they're, they're, the, they're pirates. They're extremely good at stealing our iron. They, they thrive on it. Um, so I think that's going to be tricky to make a form of iron that is essentially, um, you know, uh, stealth iron and, and can't be can't be robbed by uh, by your bugs. So the question I want to get to is, is it's going to be two parter one without the data that you've seen or the data that we've collected, because I feel like some of that data is probably skewed more towards the physical aspects of iron deficiency. But do you have a concern about the mental aspects like the this, the, the, this like the psycho, the psychological, psychological aspects of um, iron deficiency? If we talk about cognitive ability slowing down, I mean, that's a big thing right now, just with the concept of brain fog after what they would call long COVID. So I'm, I'm, I'm generally 
curious if there's going to see a giant pool in that direction because I start wondering about neuro uh, neurogenerative diseases where people's brains are like slowly kind of tearing down and I feel like that's probably something like iron as well too that not supplementing enough your brain starts to lose certain parts of oxygen you get fatigue your body wants to go to sleep or just passing out I mean I have I have no clue there's probably not an extreme case like that but well um so in children um in growing children again in relatively poor parts of the world iron deficiency is fairly well associated with um impairment of cognitive uh, development but that's because in growing children brain growth is very highly um iron intensive needs a lot of iron needs a lot of um, metabolism a heck of a lot of energy and, and iron helps you make the energy so that's fairly well described but in in adults which is my, maybe what you're kind of getting into a bit more design is iron deficiency associated with um poor cognitive performance and brain fog and so on i think that's less well explored um in terms of long covid we it again not very well explored at all although a lot of data is coming that in in many day in many diseases infectious diseases which have this um a chronic aspect to them where people have inflammation for a very long time very often uh, part of that is iron is distributed differently in the body so the iron atoms actually go to different types of cells compared to how they would normally uh, be distributed so there might be in the one sort of white blood cell but not another they might not be able to get into the liver as well and so on and so forth and we don't really understand what the consequences of that is but it's almost certain that there are some because in every single cell that you have iron is doing something important so if you start putting the iron in different locations in the body um you know you, you might well have some 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 processes some organs working less well than others that's kind of pretty speculative and pretty hypothetical, but you know, I think it's also plausible. In terms of um, neurodegenerative disorders, there are in fact some that are directly related to iron, but iron overload. So there's things called NBIA, and these are um, definitely associated with too much iron being found in the brain. And if you have too much iron, what it does, the reason why it's a bad thing, aside from the issue of infection is that iron is an extremely reactive chemical element and it generates um, things called free radicals uh, catalytically so it keeps on making them you get lots and lots of free radicals per atom of iron if it's not if, if you have too much iron if it's not doing its job properly and so that can lead to tissue damage and so where you have that extra iron the the local surrounding tissues will get damaged and so there there are some disorders of the uh, some neurodegenerative disorders associated with too much iron in the brain and it also in in hemochromatosis that i was mentioning earlier it's the liver that tends to be affected too much iron in the liver and you get liver damage from that so too much iron is toxic because of its chemical reactivity but it's also bad because um bugs can use it to grow so there's two reasons why too much iron is bad when it comes to iron being at a severe level, maybe on E for a very long time, does the body try and find the same exact what's similar to that nutrient somewhere else and try and pull it from somewhere else? Uh, uh, there's nothing. Iron is essentially irreplaceable in many of the processes that we have. Um, so there it's and it's been like that, you know, for literally billions of years. So the, the very ancient forms of life adapted iron to help them make DNA and to help them make energy and so on. 
and iron's become you know just fundamentally ingrained in metabolism of almost all living organisms and you can't replace it with any other element for most of those things there are, there is there's there's two quite remarkable um uh, exceptions to this uh, and i think you'll find these interesting so the, the first one is an organism called uh, lactobacilli and these are friendly bacteria that live in your gut and they've managed to evolve to not need iron essentially at all uh, and they use manganese instead of iron uh, in their in their metabolism in their enzymes and, and so on uh, and so one of the reasons why that's important is if you have too much iron and you, you have too many iron tablets and so on, the lactobacilli can't grow on that. And it's the unfriendly bacteria that do need iron that can outgrow the protective lactobacilli. So that's one of the reasons why that goes wrong. The second organism that we know of that doesn't need iron is actually the causative factor of Lyme disease is Borrelia burgdorferi. Uh, the, 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 the bug that causes Lyme disease. And again, in some extraordinary feat of evolution, it's managed to basically avoid using iron and again, tends to use manganese as well. So apart from those two, every single form of life is utterly dependent on iron because it has unique um, biochemical properties. It's able to catalyze lots of reactions and it's able to bind lots of other atoms in different orientations. And it's just a, a really, really cool, um atom element from a, a kind of a biological perspective well if you probably took a poll most things would probably be made with a little bit of iron inside of it um but when it comes to temperature regulation what what do you because for, for me my if you put a thermostat up to me and you put it on my chest my chest is going to be like probably a 96 but my hands are 74 i've tested this at work my hands always go like blue or they go like they're the first things to get cold even when it's not really cold out and i'm guessing that's from my iron deficiency that's how i know so much of at least a good amount about iron for like a common public person because i did my own research into it to try and figure out ways to supplement and ways this i have adhd i think that might be a cause factor of why i burn so much iron it's the reason like hypertension as well too i like all these things where i'm like i do that twice as much as that person how are they not doing that you can say it's a genetic thing for sure i think the genetic cause for me would be the ADHD is my body's like a furnace and it's burning twice as much as it's supposed to well they say cold hands warm heart right so you know <laughs> <laughs> um but no so i mean they i i wouldn't be able to diagnose right um i mean maybe there's some circulation things as well uh iron iron its role in thermoregulation I'm not familiar. I don't. I don't know. There's a there's a, a strongly well described role for that, but there's certainly clearly a, a deep underlying role of iron in burning energy and making energy. So your your ATP that, that your body uses to, as a form of energy, the, a molecule called ATP. The synthesis of ATP um, requires iron and oxygen. Uh, and you know, it's a very key basic metabolic process, you know, millions and millions and millions of years old uh, and very, very highly iron requiring. The reason why I asked about if a, if a low deficiency could cause it, an organ to try and find a chemical that's similar or find a piece that's similar or supplement that's similar um, to be able to pull from is because of the thermogenic response that like my hands getting cold keeps the blood flowing towards more of my organs to preserve those because those are more important than like my fingertips and toes. Usually it's the farthest appendages that tend to get cold first because it's farther away from the heart. It takes more energy to pump that blood there. So I was just wondering, because I think our bodies are incredibly 
incredibly fascinating. And I think in, in my opinion, they have minds of their own um, and they kind of are able to notice things that you aren't able to notice. I mean, the fact that we're able to just breathe and expect it to work every single day is a fascinating concept of it. Um, but it, stresses the importance of making sure that you also get every single essential vitamin and also every single essential nutrient that you can possibly get. But you got to understand that there has to be an area of leniency for the aspect that some places don't have the measures or precautions to be able to receive those supplements, which makes it even more important to try and make sure we can find a way to give those places supplementation. But the biggest one, which usually probably gets the most amount of funding would be infectious diseases, because that's a prime importance of just something that everyone can randomly get. And we don't know when it's going to happen, but I wonder how long until a person notices that they might be iron deficient without going to a doctor, like the, is there, is there signs and then how long can they run on E without experiencing like a severe side effect? Like, I know we talk about like, um, our brains, for instance, if our brain's missing a certain chemical or missing, or maybe a certain amount of sleep, you start getting tired more, but then eventually like what causes irreversible damage in a sense, imagine you're not getting a nutrient for long enough. And the next thing you know, when you do bounce back from E, you don't come back a hundred percent. Okay. Uh, I'm not, I, I'm not so familiar with uh, effects of E, but um, what, uh, what I'll say. So one, I think a couple of things you said that uh, I need to make a response to. So, well, the um, E was a gas tank. I meant like empty. Oh, uh, right. Okay. Yeah, good. It's, it's not an actual supplement. Uh, no, good. I, I was worried it was ecstasy or something, but no. Great. <laughs> <laughs> <right>, anyway, so <laughs> we, what, what I would say is that, you know, although, you know, I'm, my lab is iron obsessed. I mean, that's what we work on. You're absolutely right. You need a balance of lots of nutrients, right? Iron alone is not going to do the job. How long would it take for somebody who is iron deficient to know, realize that they're iron deficient is a really important question and it's tough to answer because it depends a lot on the age of the person how active they are um what they're trying to do you know athletes when they get iron deficient probably notice it pretty quickly um certainly you you will notice effects of iron deficiency before you become anemic that's definitely for sure i've just got a helicopter coming into the hospital i'm afraid it might interfere with the sound slightly but you can't do much about it um and then um in terms of irreversible damage, it's a that's a great question, and it it does appear that that be beyond a certain point, particularly in in infants, if uh, there's severe iron deficiency, you can get irreversible damage. I think to the pituitary is the particular part of the brain that can be affected. That's quite old data, but seems to be pretty secure. So it can happen. Um, certainly most effects of iron deficiency are usually reversible uh, if the if if the right kind of iron levels can be restored then then mostly it's reversible um, but that is an example of something that appears not to be now with the increase of iron supplementation in the general population would you see that these microbes or these and i would say diseases or these pathogens also find a way to adapt as well too i also talk about our sanitation is probably a reason why a lot of people get sick easier just because we're not like living out in the middle of the forest eating raw meat or something like that usually like if you notice during the pandemic there was a thing in the states called a red meat scare and the red meat scare was that every single news broadcasting stations just like toilet paper said that red meat was going to be you're not going to find it and everyone flocked to the stores and doubled up on red meat well the interesting thing about that was the number of people like because you're in a lockdown you're eating red meat um the e coli numbers went up by five percent 
And you, you get this aspect of like, is that just because people were eating something, getting way too much iron maybe into their blood and causing their bodies to become weaker or their immune systems to become kind of, you know, very vulnerable to other bacteria that also need this form of iron? It, well, it could be. I haven't, I haven't read. I mean, it's, it's more or less plausible. What we tend to find, though, is that in populations that normally have extremely good access to first-line healthcare, to antibiotics, uh, and they're just generally relatively hygienic, that um, iron supplementation is not really at all dangerous in terms of um, causing those systemic, really nasty infections. Sure, you can get effects of having too many iron tablets on your gut, and it's un unpleasant, and also it doesn't really work. But in terms of really promoting a, you know, a, a bloodstream sepsis, that is really quite rare because your immune system works and and you've also got the population as a whole has got access to antibiotics and so you know it's usually kind of pretty 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 okay but in it's the, absolutely the concern again in poorer populations in the world and uh where where access to um frontline healthcare is worse but also the general burden of infection and in, is much higher in part because of um hygiene issues, but also because of environmental factors and that you know, if you're in the jungle, there's just you know, tends to be more bugs than there is if you're in downtown Manhattan. But um, it, it, it is always worth bearing in mind, and you're absolutely right to say that bugs have the ability to adapt and to get better at scavenging iron. That's been very well described you know, in lots of different experiments and lots of different observations, genetic changes in bugs in order to uh, get better at uh, capturing iron from their host as they kind of move between hosts. That definitely does happen. When it comes to with iron supplementation, again, because I'm really kind of trying to figure out ways of like, how can we incorporate this more into areas that would be neglecting? Is there a more of a focus of trying to make sure that people aren't getting infected or making sure that people actually grow up sustainable lives, I would say, or maybe full growth development because i mean we all know some people like there's a kid at my work who's 24 as well same age as me but he has like muscular dystrophy in a sense and he talks about like a lot of times when he was a kid he wasn't getting the proper nutrients and i'm like well is that is is it also a genetic factor no his family that says it's not a genetic factor but not getting the proper nutrients i mean there's a prime example like i i picture myself for instance what i look like how i look like now if i didn't find the gym Probably not, but would I look like how I do right now if I just completely neglected my health when it came to beneficial nutrients that just from getting from prior food, if I just drank water and went down this different rabbit hole, would my whole entire genetic makeup look completely different? Yeah, uh, your genetic makeup wouldn't look any different, but you 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 might look different. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so um, I think that's a that's a tricky one as well but it depends very much on, yeah it depends very much on the on the population right if if we're if we're talking about you know uk us europe and so on then the risk of infection is relatively low and infectious diseases generally you know apart from the occasional pandemic um very well controlled um uh you know there's there's not you know we don't have malaria being rife we don't have tb being rife we, you know those sorts of things are relatively controlled as we compare that so so from that respect um getting the right nutrients to make sure that there's good growth and health is is the reason right is 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 the driving factor but in in areas again where there's a high infectious burden when you know there's all sorts of bugs ready to go 
then you've got to be a lot more careful. And that's where the, the problem really is. Where So iron deficiency, um, you should say, is relatively protective against some infections. So it's particularly, it's well known that it's protective against malaria. So um, in sub-Saharan Africa, you know, we know that this is important uh, and it's important in children and it's important in pregnant women. So if you try and make the iron deficiency better, you do in fact, you know, run the risk of exacerbating um, malaria. So where do you draw the line there? How do you make that decision? Because iron deficiency isn't very good, uh, particularly if there's anemia and particularly if it's a pregnant woman we're talking about or a growing child. Um, but malaria can be pretty bad too. So figuring out that balance is just extremely difficult problem. Well, it led to the question I was going to ask, which is I bet if you took a poll about the number of people that like from the States or the UK that traveled to another country, um, their infection rates, what's the percentage back on infection rates? I have to feel like maybe part of the reason that if there's iron deficiency, if you're going to look for like maybe a somewhat positive light is the fact that they're maybe not infected. I know people talk about like maybe it's just the area you're not used to that type of thing. That's why people usually take malaria medication or something because we don't have that over here. But I go also, we're getting a abundance of nutrients that another place is not getting so we're also going to be like the prime target in a sense and that's why you see a lot of people that suffer from those infectious diseases or pathogens well, it's, it, that's true but it's also because um if you grow up in a place surrounded by bugs then you naturally develop immunity to them you should if you're healthy enough whereas if uh, you know if i went out to um i don't know um papua new guinea and got some infectious disease i would never have seen then it's quite possible it would do far more damage to me than it would to um, a native of that area because I'd never had the chance to develop an immune response ever. And so uh, I potentially you know, would be overwhelmed by a pathogen that a person who, who's been living in that environment for a long time would have developed some immunity to. So it's that naivety that, that, that different populations have to different bugs that's an issue. And added on to that is then, yes, of course, the you know, would I be a good host? Well, I probably would because I've, I've got a reasonable diet and I'm probably full of the amount of iron and other nutrients that bugs will need. So yeah, it, you, that, those, are the, those are the sort of the factors to bear in mind. When it comes to the human species, is it is this like this in pets as well too? Do they need a certain amount of iron in their thing? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a, it's very much so. So um, puppies and kittens can get a lot of iron deficiency if they're growing rapidly. Um, pigs, um, are because of the you know many decades centuries of breeding pigs to maximize litter size and to maximize growth of pigs piglets naturally become very iron deficient and anemic so almost all piglets get an either injection of iron or iron added to their their mum's milk the sow's milk in order to get them through this period of extremely rapid growth um, so yeah piglets are normally very iron deficient indeed um, but it actually can work the other way. So one of the famous examples is rhinoceros, rhinoceroses, some, some um, species of rhinoceros that in the wild live on an absolutely horrific diet, you know, just twigs and bits of grass and stuff, and are extremely good at getting the iron out of that. And so they're, you know, they're a bit iron deficient usually, but you know, they're a rhino, they've managed to grow so big. Then you put a rhino in a zoo and you give it what you think is really healthy, nutritious um, food, but it can get a kind of an iron overload disorder because it doesn't have that ability that humans have of making hepcidin to block out the extra iron. Rhinos, if they've been living in a very iron deficient diet for however many hundreds of thousands of years, have lost that ability, at least some species have. So when you get them in a zoo situation and you give them what you think is good food, 
but has lots of iron in it, it's actually can be toxic. Um, so there, there are quite a few um, zoo related uh, issues of animals in zoos where the, 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 the iron in the diet can, can have toxicity issues and it's quite a well recognized problem. And it's all to do with whether that animal's normal diet that it's evolved to is very low iron or not. So um, if you can imagine, a good example is bats too. So if you think a vampire bat, what does a vampire bat live on? Uh, lives on blood. So it's extremely good at dealing with iron. Uh, and so vampire bats don't really get ill in zoos when you give them really good food or blood. But a fruit bat has evolved to live on fruit and there's not much iron in fruit. And if you give it a, a kind of a, a high iron diet, then it can't really defend itself from it very well. And so there can be toxicities. So, you know, bats, but fruit bat versus vampire bat, very different diets, leads to very different bio biological adaptation. Back to the cognitive issues, is it possible that there could be like with the like, would you say like the general or the general public, like their health in the iron department is good? Would you say that it's bad? Would you say like, has it been declining over a period of time? Or has it been increasing? I'd say I, I wouldn't. I don't see much evidence for a decline. I don't know how much data there really is out there. Um, because I'm trying to find the correlation with cognitive function, depression, and all that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think these are very, very multifactorial, and and diet and iron could potentially play a role, but it's unlikely to, in my view, unlikely to be a major cause. I think they're very, very complex. I do think that it's very possible that iron deficiency is relatively undiagnosed. So I think there may be more people with iron deficiency around than we realize, and I also think that the effects of iron deficiency on our bodies are are not as we really don't understand it as, as much as we should would it ever get to a point where instead of taking a pill you could find another way to be able to get it not just from food but like maybe a spray like a nose spray or something like that no just... no spray of iron that's an interesting idea i know it's dumb now that you yeah, say it out loud no but... i don't know no it's not dumb at all um that's you know why not think about it? It depends on how it's absorbed. Where we know the iron is absorbed is in the a particular area of your intestinal tract called the duodenum, just downstream of the stomach. Um, and so I think really the iron's basically got to get to there or you give it via a needle you know, intravenously. Um, so I think, uh, yeah, giving it in the nose, it might not get in. It might, it might, just, uh, it might just get a sore nose, I don't know. Yeah. Like I said, there's going to be people out there that aren't going to like taking a pill. I don't like taking pills at all, even supplements and vitamins. I try and get it from natural food or something. So, like that. so the other thing that people do is uh, they have um, is fortificants, is um, uh, powders, you know, that you kind of sprinkle on food and they contain lots of different nutrients, but they don't alter the taste of the food and they just basically go in the food. Um, that, well, that's, 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 that, yeah, that's powders and sprinkles. But the other thing is then fortificants, which then go into the food, uh, like flour or into your bran flakes. So not tablets. So tablets is one way of doing it. Um, fortificants going into the basic raw material food stuff is another. And then sprinkles, putting them on top of the food once it's cooked is a, is a third one. So you're, you're not restricted to tablets. Huh. Well, I got to ask, how'd you get interested in just studying iron? Huh? Uh... Yeah. Um, so I just don't picture you waking up at like, I'm going to study iron today. Well, that's what I do. You know, that is, know. that's the nature of my okay. existence. But um, I think it's what happened was I was, I, I'm trained as an immunologist 
And um, there's a whole bunch of genes that control the immune system that my first boss was working on. And a new one was discovered and it looked exactly like it should be controlling the immune system. It, you know, it just looked like one of those genes. But it turned out instead uh, that when this gene goes wrong, people end up with this disorder called hemochromatosis that um, I mentioned to you before. So the question was, what is this gene that looks like an immunological gene doing, actually controlling iron? What are the deep relationships between iron and the immune system and infection? Uh, and um, you know, there really are some, and that's what we've been working on I think that, you know, for really the, a very long time now. And, and yeah, we, we found that, that, that if you don't have enough iron, then yeah, your immune response just does not work as well. And I think that's potentially a really important finding that we're following up in all sorts of basic studies in the lab, but also clinical trials where we're asking if we give iron uh, in, in people at the time that they're getting their vaccines, does it actually make their immune response to the vaccine better? because it means your white blood cells can get the iron that they need when they need it, when they're getting the vaccine. So I, th I think these are, these are quite important questions. What is the most common thing that people get infected with if they have too little iron and then too much iron? Yeah. So too much iron, I, that's a relatively easy one, I think. So there's a bug called um, Vibrio uh, vulnificans that um lives in oysters and uh normally it doesn't cause if you get an infection with vibrio it, it would not cause a problem to somebody who is either iron deficient or just has normal amounts of iron but if you have hemochromatosis it's 50 percent mortality in a few days so it can be really dangerous so it absolutely loves iron and then it, it grows out of control very quickly so that's the riskiest one to get. Um, malaria, though, is probably arguably the most important worldwide in terms of the, the you know, its, its mortality and its sensitivity to iron. What bug, what infections would you get most likely if you're iron deficient? Um, that's a harder one. I don't think we really know the answer to that, but it, it will be some bacteria, um, potentially bacteria that might, that, that, that don't live in the bloodstream, but live within um, other types of cells. But I, th I think that's a that's a really tough one. The other thing is is viruses. So the ability of the the body to clear viral infections really needs a very good immune response that needs iron. So it may be that viral infections are particularly uh, may be common in people who are iron deficiency, people who have iron deficiency. But the data is not really out there on it. I have to say it's not really out there. What do you think about like um, with types of medicines? Um... Uh, antibiotics, that the type of resistance that's building up where these antibiotics might not be as useful as they were before. You think iron might play a factor into maybe helping find another route to a medical treatment? Yeah, definitely. The, the people are definitely, it's a great question. People are, are definitely working on that. You know, how, so this wouldn't actually kill a bug. But, so it wouldn't be, a, it wouldn't be um, microbicidal, but it would be bacteriostatic. So it would stop from growing. So if you could deny iron to uh, bacteria, then it can't grow. It wouldn't necessarily die, but if it's not growing, it's not going to cause you a problem. And then you gain more time um, for your body to then fight off an infection if the bugs aren't growing. Mm. And in fact, that is what the body does anyway. So one part of the immune response to um, basically almost all infections is actually to actively take iron away from the bugs. Uh, and this is something called nutritional immunity, it's called, but it, uh, and um, 
that molecule that I keep banging on about, hepcidin, is really part of that. So if you have an infection, hepcidin goes right up, and that means you have much less iron in your bloodstream, and that is very protective against a whole series of, of important infections. Um, and so, you know, part of defending yourself against infection anyway is to try and, try and take iron away from the invading microorganism. But if we can get better at it, if we can improve that process, then yeah, that's a, it's a good route. It's a good theoretical route forward. How much does iron actually play into the immune system? Like if I have iron deficiency, but I rarely get sick. Yeah, um, depends, right? I think it, it, it depends on um, how exposed you are to, to different um, types of infections and whether your immune system is able to deal with it and maybe how iron deficient you are. Because you know, iron deficiency, although it can be diagnosed by whether you, 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 know, you, you have hemoglobin below a certain level or whether you have um, other um, blood tests that go below a certain level. Of course, it's actually a continuum. And so some people can be a lot more iron deficient than others. And we expect that, um, that the more iron deficient that, that a person is, then the more likely their immune system is to be affected by that. Uh, and then on top of that, that person then obviously has to be exposed to the infectious bacteria or whatever in the first place. If they're not exposed, then you'll never know. Do you think, because um, back to what you said before about like taking a pill and then spreading it out over a couple of days, do you think with a better like kind of method, one that like has enough studies behind it to show that it's proven to work, do you think with that better education and like maybe like how people learn about like nutritional plans that you would see an overall beneficial quality of overall life? Yeah, I would definitely, I really do. I think that if we can optimize um, giving iron in a way that's safe and effective, it will benefit enormous numbers of people because it's such a key nutrient for so many different populations you know not just 24 year old guys but you know uh, infants pregnant women the elderly it, it's really a really critical nutrient there's no doubt about that but we're not very good at getting it into people in in a very safe and efficacious way is there iron and baby formula uh yeah there can be yeah it depends it, it almost always there is yeah okay I'm just wondering if it's like an excessive amount, depending on how much they need. No, I don't think so. Um, it's been, you know, it's pretty well mapped out. And that's, you know, um, there's not much iron. There's there's some iron in, in natural mother's milk. And I think there's a, a little bit more in formula, but it, it depends a lot on the on the different type and so on. But it's, it's very heavily regulated, as you can imagine. Okay. Well, I appreciate you for giving me your time and doing the podcast. Is there a place where people can find any of your links? Oh, well, uh, yeah, on Twitter. So that's uh, at Drake Smith underscore lab. Are you? Thank you. I'm honored. Uh, and then, yeah, you know, if you just I mean, I, my surname is relatively unusual. So if you just type in Drake Smith and iron, then you'll get to me pretty quickly. Okay, well, I'll make sure I link it all in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank.